bringing in specialists earlier is something that you need to do, but you should only do that once you have product market fit. And then I think after that stage, the real challenge you have is what I would call go-to-market fit. So, all right, you've got a product people love. It's repeatable. You can sell it to more people than just your friends and family. Like, so you have real customers that renew, which is, which is a great stage to get to. Thank you for listening. This is Brett Trainer, your host for Hardwired for Growth, a podcast where we strive to help entrepreneurs and business owners not only grow their businesses, but scale them. We do this by having conversations with industry experts and the entrepreneurs who have successfully scaled their own businesses. Statistics show that only 5% of all startups ever achieve annual revenue of a million dollars and less than 1% reach 10 million. Our mission is to help more than double the number of companies that reach each of those thresholds. The voice you heard a few minutes ago is that of Tessa Hurdcourt. Tessa is the CEO and co-founder of the rapidly growing software firm, Intelligence Bank. This episode is the first of what we are calling our success series, where we will focus on entrepreneurs who have successfully scaled their businesses. They will tell their story in their own words and share what worked and what didn't. In today's conversation, we discuss Tessa's journey from a 14-year-old girl that knew she wanted to be in global advertising to co-founding one of Australia's fastest-growing companies, with a few stops in between. The questions we answer today are what she learned from running sales and marketing for a global startup prior to co-founding Intelligence Bank, why product market validation and really understanding the problem you're solving for your customer is critical before expanding, why making sure early hires are in complete alignment with culture and the vision for the company, why being cash flow positive from the beginning was both a strength and a weakness, why in hindsight, Tesla would have hired specialized positions sooner, By having diversity of thought, but also having shared values is critical for growing a business. And why Tessa is a believer in the value of advisors, but even a bigger advocate of CEO mentors. Plus, we get into much, much more. Now, on to the intro. Welcome back. You're listening to Hardwired for Growth a podcast dedicated to helping entrepreneurs and business owners who are looking for sustainable and scalable growth strategies, led by your host, Brett Trainer. Hi, Tessa. Welcome to the show. Hi, Brett. Good to be here. It's great to have you not only on the show, but in back in country. Yeah. So I live... Um, so Intelligence Bank's headquartered in Melbourne, Australia. And um, yes, we have an office here in Southern California. So... In the Melbourne winters, I'm able to come to sunny Cali, which is which is a treat. So it's good to be here. All right, to get started, Tessa, one the question I like to ask versus job description and or company description. If you were at a cocktail party, which I'm sure you have to on occasion, you know, how do you introduce yourself and and what your company does? Yeah, so um, I think it depends who I'm talking to. So obviously, people in the business, um, we're a digital content compliance company. But what does that mean for most people? Um, And really, if MarTech and RegTech had a love child, they'd get intelligence banks. So we do have a lot of products, but um, our main one is marketing operations. So we work with companies in lots of different industries, but primarily we're focused on companies in regulated industries, whereby you can get fired or sued based on the creative that that goes out the door. So we help people in large banks and large retailers and FMCG companies put 
systems and processes around marketing operations. Gotcha. And, and we'll get into some of the specifics, but you've kind of focused over the last couple of years right into that space. Because if I recall, a number of years ago, you had a little bit more breadth to the offering, but you, you doubled down into the marketing component and regulation. Is that true? Yeah, it's really interesting. So, um, so when we launched Intelligence Bank, we, we registered the company in 2009 and had software in market with paying customers as a profitable company by 2010, which was... Um, very exciting. And, you know, one of the issues about being in Australia where it's a relatively small market, I mean, it's just to put into perspective, there's 20 million, 24 million people in Australia, which is about the size of New York state, you know, yeah. from the country. so from an entrepreneur and a product development perspective, our product got pulled really by necessity in lots of different directions. And because it was really flexible, out of the box. It, it kind of, you know, people were, it was, it was invented really for sales and marketing and then people were using it for a board portal. People were using it for risk and compliance, but I guess the soul of intelligence bank from day one was always around compliance around digital content. And that that's, you know, I read the business plan from day one. That's what it's been. So we did branch out into several different products and we still do have very large successful clients who use us for board governance as well as for risk and compliance. But really where we're getting a lot of traction and kind of our sweet spot is around the marketing compliance area. And especially as, you know, more and more, you know, marketing departments are exploding with digital content, but at the same time, they're living in a shadow of compliance. So it's really kind of riding on those two mega trends, if you will. And that's kind of where Intelligence Bank sits. And you hit the perfect storm, which which is awesome. And, you know, kind of where I'd, I'd like to start before, you know, definitely your entrepreneurial journey, you know, I read in, I think, an article in MarTech, it said that the quote was that you knew since the age of 16, you wanted to be in marketing. How did you know that at, at that age? And, you know, what kind of pushed you? Obviously, you were right. <laughs> but, you know, what was it at, at 16, that, you know, kind of pushed you that said, hey, I want to be in this space? Yeah, it was funny. I always knew I wanted to be in global advertising. So since I was like 14 or 15, it was on, you know, posters on my wall at, I just loved ads. And I think, I think really where that comes back to is I like making things ultimately. So what kind of drives me is, you know, putting things into the world that's never existed before. And that's what I really enjoy doing. And so obviously being an entrepreneur and having your own company, enables you to do that like no other. So I guess you could be an artist or a painter or writer as well. But, um, but yeah, so that, that's kind of what drove me. And I think marketing as a career, it really kind of, you know, encapsulates business and creativity at the same time. And it's that intersection of those two things that I I just love. So, and I, you know, I'm one of those people who look for beautiful design and everything that exists on the planet. And um, so, yeah, I think that intersection for me, I always knew what I was going to do from that perspective. So, um, yeah, I think I was lucky and I just moved straight to New York after college to join an ad agency, which was, which was great. Which was the start of it. And that perfect segue into my next, uh, kind of question is you weren't always an entrepreneur, but it does seem from your background, you worked with a lot of entrepreneurial companies. You know, what was the, the tipping point in your career that led you, you know, down the path of, of starting your own company? Yeah. So I guess, um, you know, when I was in college, my friend and I, we started a 
skirt company. So we made skirts and we sold them. So I've, I kind of was always making stuff and selling it, I, I think from a long time ago. So I had moved to Australia from New York and I worked in advertising. And when I moved there, I joined a startup called Hitwise, which was internet measurement. So the idea was almost like television ratings, but for websites and it was competitive intelligence. So I kind of caught the tech startup bug there. So I ran global sales and marketing, absolutely loved it, was you know, kind of part of the journey to expand in you know, several different markets. And I think I was denied Australian citizenship because I was physically on a plane so much and outside of Australia when I moved there that they said you hadn't been in the country long enough. So I was rejected. So, and um, yeah, it was kind of a proof point for my husband who was like, you're never home. But yeah, so I think it was at that point where I just loved it. I loved the team, you know, the team building and the teamwork. But then again, it's about making things and, you know, being the underdog. And, you know, at that time we're fighting against Nielsen, um, you know, net ratings and, yeah, it was, it's, it's really fun, you know, kind of cracking the nut a different way and, and being unique and, you know, getting clients, which was, which I love doing. Which is, and Hitwise definitely had the success. And I think in a couple of the articles you alluded to the, the buyout or when you ended up leaving, when did you leave Hitwise? 2009, 2008? Uh, 2008, I left. So, um, yeah, we sold in 2007. So that was right before the crash as well. So that was a really, that was good timing and it was a great product and great, great management team as well. And then when, when I, I, t- I took a little bit of time off and um, I, I nearly went crazy, not working. Um, and basically I went and built the product I always wanted somebody growing and managing a global sales and marketing team. And that's kind of how intelligence bank was born. Okay, which is again, you're per- a great guest because you keep leading me right into the next question. The marketing angle, the marketing. <laughs> <laughs> was you know, so looking at Intelligence Bank, and you know, I always like to think, what was the problem? You know, when you, the the genesis of the idea that you were trying to solve, right? I think obviously you had some great experience with Hitwise and everything that you were doing there. So, what was it that you know, after you took the time off, had time to think? You know, was the the problem that you were trying to solve with you know the original? idea of intelligence bank. Yeah. So I think it's, it's really, it was really two things that I was solving for. One is the concept of efficiency. So, you know, in Hitwise was a relatively small company in the sense that, you know, I was managing a global team of 80 sales and marketing people around the world. And, but even with 80 people, it was like, you know, do you have the right version of the PowerPoint? Do you know our talk track about this? With our local marketing managers in the UK and the US, did we have, you know, the right assets, Can, are we reusing the ads or are we duplicating and, you know, wasting money and things like that. So there was definitely an efficiency side. And then there was also like an approval and a compliance side, because even though you have brand guidelines and the best intentions of creating on-brand, you know, strategic work, you know, the clip art kind of sneaks out here and there, or, and, you know, we weren't obviously a regulated industry from that perspective, but even claims in advertising. So, and I'm thinking about, you know, some of the clients that I had worked with in the past is that it's a massive problem. So as digital content explodes and, and, the, and also the rate of, of change and the speed at which marketing departments work at. So if you think about 10 years ago, you know, a large company might have, you know, a team of 50 or 60 people. Let's say they are working on, let's say, 20 to 30 projects. There was some digital, traditional media channels. Fast forward 10 years now, 
you know, they still have the same number of people, but they're working on like 250 projects at the same time. And they're worried about personalization and they've got freelancers coming at them from different, different angles all the time and kind of managing that as well. And then, you know, obviously everyone's an art director. So you'd have HR and you have all of these different stakeholders in your company now wanting to produce content. And so how do you herd the cats and kind of, you know, create a system and a process to manage all of that. So I could kind of see that coming at the same time. So that's really how Intelligence Bank got started based on those, those kind of truths in marketing, I guess. There's yeah. no truth in advertising, but there's truth in marketing. Exactly. And I think it's still, and definitely in the U.S., it's still a huge you know, problem today in the sense that consistency in the messaging across not just sales and marketing, but now all the way through to customer success and beyond, right? So how do you get the same messaging across? And if you don't have the platform or the tools, and you know, I had read recently that you're looking and are aggressively expanding into the U.S. So uh, welcome. <laughs> <laughs> you know, there's a lot of, there's a lot of opportunity. And it's, you know, what's really funny is that, you know, We'll be talking to, you know, a very, very large company, you know, it could be Fortune 100 type company and nobody really has it together yet. You know, very few, very few people have a fully integrated marketing operations tech stack. You know, there's a lot of like piecemeal projects and piecemeal systems kind of put together, but there are very few that have cracked it, which is, which is probably a good thing for us. Yeah, no, and you know, I had a guest on Diana Finley not too long ago, and they basically created a company here in the States called Interview. And the sole purpose of their company is to help extend, you know, the brand message from marketing all the way through the various customer touch points across, you know, the organization and very large organizations that are, you know, heavily siloed in, in those areas. So the fact that you can start a company and grow very rapidly based on, you know, brand dilution is still, I think you and I have had this conversation maybe not 10 years ago, but probably close that how are sales and marketing still not aligned? <laughs> and yet, yet still here we are with, you know, an opportunity in that space. So. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And it's, you know, and one of the great things that, you know, we get to do is, you know, with our marketing team internally at Intelligence Bank, it's like they're, they're using our own products. So it's really great to see. And I'm pretty close to that division, as you would imagine. So <laughs> probably too close sometimes, but um, it's, it's great to see them using the tool and understanding the pain points, even, you know, in a relatively small company to see how it exists everywhere. And it's like a universal problem that we're solving, which is, which is good. Yeah, which is, which is great. So until I kind of like to transition into one of the specific areas or stages of growth that obviously your company has been able to, to, to break through and just to kind of set the table as we talk about stages of growth to start up and at least in my own mind, this is, you know, through my experience and some of the research, you know, this is how I kind of break it down is right. Getting started. So you have an idea, you may have one or two customers, you know, basically it's beyond a side hustle and it's becoming a real business business. Second is, you know, what I've kind of labeled as founder's capacity, right? So you started a company, you may have yourself or one or two others that are helping, but you've got a point to, you've grown the business where you can't handle any more business by yourself. And a lot of entrepreneurs get stuck in this stage because they don't know 
kind of what to do next and, you know, ended up getting burned out because, you know, either they don't take action or they take the wrong action. And that was, you know, obviously I wanted to hear your, the overall story of Intelligence Bank and how you got there. But, you know, I think for our listeners and the audience, it'd be really helpful if you can kind of take us back in time you know, as you were at that point of, you know, founder's capacity and looking at the future, knowing the demands there, you know, what were some of the things that you thought about from either a hiring or process or systems, you know, back in the day that, you know, you considered then ultimately took action on? Yeah, sure. So, so I guess I would just make a couple of comments. So I guess around the startup journey, I mean, your first couple or several years is all about product market fit. And so you're kind of scrambling around. You've got a team of people who can kind of do everything really well and you're tight knit and you're just making it happen. So that was really us, I think, you know, when we started. So, you know, this, the person, my second hire is our, now our head of product and he's, you know, my right hand and most things I do. And, you know, you need those all rounder type people. But I think, um, you know, obviously what happens when you gain traction and you start to hit that product market fit is that it's not good enough for the CEO or the founder or just the one or two people who can do everything to keep doing everything. So you have to hire a deeper management badge and you also have to specialize. And I think for me, the biggest insight that I probably should have learned earlier than I did was that I still kept trying to do everything and being in control of everything just because it's not that I was precious, but it was like, I just had enormous capacity to do it. And so, you know, intelligence bank is not just my business, it's my hobby and I love it. And and I, I just find it to be an amazing intellectual challenge and it's fun. And, you know, if I could work on it 24, seven, three, six, five, I would I love it. So, but not everyone's like that. And I completely understand that, especially my staff. So, but I think the, um, bringing in specialists earlier is something that you need to do, but you should only do that once you have product market fit. And then I think after that stage, the real challenge you have is what I would call go to market fit. So, all right, you've got a product people love, it's repeatable. You can sell it to more people than just your friends and family. Like, so you have real customers that renew, which is, which is a great stage to get to. Right. Um, and, but then, then it's about scale. So it's about scale with, with internal processes. And it's also a scale with, with regards to distribution. So how do we cost effectively get our product into more people's hands and figuring that kind of channel side out, I think is the next um, step, especially when you're in the growth phase. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. And if I read that right, you you guys have been, or Intelligence Bank has been profitable since year run. So you took a very controlled approach to your growth, right? Yeah, and I think it's funny. Um, it's kind of, you know, the, the strength of anything is also its weakness. And, you know, we were profitable and we've been cash positive for ever. Um, and so I guess for us, we never... We're desperate for cash because we could just keep growing. But you know, obviously in startup land, you're competing with companies who've raised, you know, we've raised eight million Aussie versus competitors of ours have raised hundred million Aussie, which is like that 75 million US. So they're able to hire at scale-up mode, they're able to hire, you know, the CFO, the head of customer success, just the the more niche roles that you need to get there. So for us, because we've always run it like a proper business versus you know, complete startup land where, 
you know, we weren't one of those businesses that just kept losing money. So we were probably too conservative to start with. But I think in the end, it's put a lot of discipline within our organization. So, you know, when I interview people, I laugh. I'm like, you're not going to find a bing bag or a ping pong table around here. Like, we're just not about that. We're about other things that are fun. Right. But it's not about that, I guess, you know, grow, 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 but lose tons of money and never see the, you know, the light of profitability ever. So that's kind of not what we're about. But I guess being conservative, financially, fiscally conservative has meant that senior hires were slower to come on board. But I feel like that's the thing of the past now and we're there. And, you know, for me, it's really exciting to have, you know, two lines of management who are specialized and can do things better than I ever would have done it. So it's, 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 it's a refreshing change for us. Yeah. And I think there's something to be said for treating it as a marathon versus a sprint, you know, um, the exact statistics, but, you know, less than 1% of all startups included funded startups ever get to a million or 10 million in annual revenue. And I think a lot of it is too quick to scale. And I think you referenced that in one of your articles as well, that, you know, building the foundation, and maybe you can talk a little bit about what you did in the early days as far as was there standard operating procedures you put in place. I mean, at some point, obviously, you had to in one area. And then two, you kind of referenced, you know, people aren't necessarily going to do it as well or passionately as I do as the CEO. You know, how do you account for that within the organization as you are starting to expand and, and hire those specialized roles? So going from, you know, two to eight to now, I think you're plus 40 and heading up to 60, you know, I think that Delta from, you know, where everybody can do everything when you're under five, under 10 to, you know, where you're, you're transitioning through right now, how did you handle that process or how are you handling that process? Yeah. So we're, yeah, so we're about 50 now and we'll go to 65 this in the, in the next year or so. And I guess for me, it's about like, I feel like now I'm in the people business. So in addition to investor relations and, you know, obviously I spend a ton of time with our customers and I feel like my job is to hire great people and to hire great leaders and to make sure that we have diversity of thought, yet we have shared values. And that's a really, really important thing. And you know, it's taking me a long, you know, we've had some great hires. We've had some not so great hires over the time, but you know, what we're really focused on is behavior and attitude. So we have, you know, regardless of the role that we were filling, we're always looking for people who are positive who see problems as opportunities, who have work ethic and have each other's back. So like those are the kind of the four things that we really look for in every role that we hire. Now, those people can be introverts, they can be extroverts, they can be tall, they can be short, they can be whatever whatever they are, it's fine, but it's that shared values that's really important. And, um, you know, I've really, I've really also taken the attitude of late, so this is, I guess, over the last three years, to be opportunistic with hires. So... We know that like, you know, we, when I've met people before who, oh, I might not have a role, but they're amazing. I just have to get them into the business. I'll just go ahead and hire them. So I'm very opportunistic now about that. Um, And also with delegation. And I think, you know, one of the things that CEOs and founders have to really think about, it's not just about how their company changes, but as the CEO, you have to change, right? So you have to stop you know, doing everything and you've got to start leading and you've got to start, you know, your job is about what does the company look like two years from now, not what it's doing right this second all the time. So I think it's a shift 
all around. But again, hiring that great team is, is really important. And one of the things that, you know, slightly stresses me out as we grow is that I want to, I want to make sure our culture remains, um, you know, that culture of having each other's back. And, you know, we've had, we've had situations in the U S you know, this was like a couple of years ago when we were starting, we had, you know, maybe five or six people here and at the time and, um, people were on planes and, you know, one of the sales guys in Australia were like, okay, I'll just do the demo for you. I'll get up at three in the morning and just do the, do the webinar. It doesn't matter. So it didn't expect commission, didn't expect anything. So like maintaining that kind of can do attitude is really important. Um, and it can get, you know, squashed out of a company quite quickly as you grow too. Yeah, no. And you said a lot of really great things. I just want to make sure I got the one quote, right? So, you know, Diversity of thought, but shared values. Is that, is that how you would phrase that? Yeah, I think so. Yeah, that's really what we're, we're aiming for. And what's, what's kind of interesting about Intelligence Bank as well is that I never had really thought about, I guess, the concept of diversity until International Women's Day last year. And I was like, oh, I wonder what our stats are. And weirdly, we're about 45, 55, so 45% women, 55% guys. And our dev team is pretty much 50-50, which is unheard of. Yeah, very <laughs> much so. I think when you focus on values, when you focus on va- shared values, you get that inherent diversity, which is you know awesome for, for product, for customers, for growth, for everything. Yeah, keeping the, the open mind as you go forward, right? Because you could very easily, everybody's going to conform to your way of thought, which you know, happens, but then all of a sudden you, you're missing a market opportunity or a shift in the market because the folks that are on the front lines and seeing it are afraid to, you know, communicate back up that, you know, here's what we're actually seeing in, in the real world as we grow. So, you know, really good stuff. You know, and one of the other things that I think, and maybe you can, you know, I read a book not too long ago called Rocket Fuel, that uh, the whole premise was any successful business needs to have the visionary and then the integrator. And, you know, as over the course of the short course so far of this podcast, interviewing the entrepreneurs and even some of the, the subject matter experts, you know, it's been really true that if you have a visionary, you need to find that integrator or the operator to help, you know, build the business to complement each other. Did you find that as, as part of your journey? Yeah, I think that's where your management bench comes in. So okay. one person at Intelligence Bank who's that integrator, but I, I, I view our senior management team is all just amazing contributors to not only their own area of expertise, but also to the overall vision of the company and, you know, how do we make things better? So yeah, I, th- I think when that role lies with one person, there's a lot of danger in that. I mean, it's, it's good if you can, I guess, just find one person who does that, but I think a true strong management team has that across the board and, it's about hiring and it's kind of a cliche, but it's hiring people better than you at those, at those roles and those functions who can implement and who can make things happen. Yeah. I I mean, my role is like, I'm just steering the ship, right? I'm like, right, we're going that way and that's what we're doing. And then the, the management team are the ones making it happen day to day. Yeah. And having the confidence and the trust, right. That you hired them, that they are going to, you know, run the company the right way. Cause I see, too many stories of the CEO, you know, hires the management team says, I have confidence in you, but yet is overriding decisions far too frequently as, 
you know, you, you didn't make the right hires. You, you're having trouble letting go of that. So the fact that you've done that, that's, that's awesome. Yeah, um, I can ask my team and see if they agree. <laughs> <laughs> no, I mean, I try to, like, I guess I, I try to guide and discuss. So I guess my style is when I see something kind of not going the way it should be going or we're not as efficient or we're having staff churn in an area or, or whatever it is. We just, we talk a lot. We're very, fr- we have very frank and open discussions and some people don't like that and can't deal with it. So, but it's, it's never personal. It's always about how do we improve the business? And I think that I try not to micromanage and I try not to get into every single little thing, but sometimes you have to as well. So I guess it's a balance for CEOs to, to do, but gradually withdrawal, I guess, is the, is the goal. And keep driving the vision. Yeah, no, definitely, definitely agree. And, and one of the, uh, and I'll have it in the show notes, what article it was specifically, but you talked about um, the value of utilizing a, a board of advisors as you were scaling. Can you maybe talk about you know, yeah. kind of your, your point of view on that and, and how you leverage them and maybe how other companies that are hitting that scale stage could be or should be thinking about that? Yeah, no, this is my new kind of, best thing ever um, <laughs> from a startup perspective. So we, we went down the path early on of having an advisory board, but it was because I was so busy and so in the weeds of day-to-day operations and the company wasn't big, obviously at the time um, I spent, they're wonderful people and still very good friends of the business today, but I found myself doing more work and I was like scrambling to present to them and they would just tell me their opinion. And then nothing would like, I was doing all the work anyway. And it just kind of wasn't working, um, from, from a, from an advisory board and then, you know, calling the meetings. I'm like, we already had board meetings. So it was just, it was kind of like a headache from, from that perspective. And it wasn't terribly effective. Although the people who were on it were amazing. It's just wrong stage, wrong format kind of thing. Okay. So what we've done recently is that, so we have our board who are extremely supportive and are very involved both strategically as well as operationally. But what I've done is I've created a small group of advisors who we obviously pay for their time, but there are three different people who kind of round out the skill sets that we don't quite have internally yet. So one is um, actually the former CEO of Hitwise, who's a good friend, but also strategically brilliant. And what's really nice about having a CEO mentor type person. And he's my friend anyway, but we, we talk frequently in a more, I guess, professional <laughs> capacity as well. Um, what's nice about that is I'm able to say anything, you know, where if I were going to hire a consultant, I'd probably, you know, lie a little bit about how great things were, <laughs> or, you know, we're, you know, with, with him, I can basically sure. say, this is what's happening. He's like, right, Tessa, you need to do X, Y, Z. And I'm like, got it off and do it. So you, sometimes you just need that sounding board that's been there, done that, or I guess been there, run that. And they can, they can kind of help guide you from that perspective. The other one is obviously corporate advisors. So, you know, we are getting lots of inbound queries from private equity and VCs and acquisitions and things like that. So having a partner and somebody, and he's just an individual who, you know, obviously this is his day job doing corporate development, but having somebody who can help bounce ideas off of like, should I even have to take this call right now? Is it the right fit? Is it the right size? And sometimes he takes those calls for me. It's, it's really good, even though we're not raising money right now. It's, it's nice to just have that 
um, I guess, at our stage as a support mechanism. And then the last is that we have, in addition to our board, we have a finance committee. So this is somebody, uh, and the chair of that is somebody who's, you know, been at a big four head of tax for kind of 35 years type person, but is the consummate chairman who is able to just help us navigate financial strategy. So more than just the P&L and getting the numbers ready and things like that, but to think, to help us think strategically about finance and operations and risk. So it's been, yeah, it's, it's, it's been a great addition to, I guess, our management team and kind of how we operate as a board. So we really, we really value those types of advisors. And I would, I like having an advisory board is great, but I think um, in some it's better or it's been better for me at least is to work with these people on specific projects versus having to report to them all together as a board, you know, once a quarter or whatever it is, it's just more effective and yeah. bigger. Uh, I think that makes a lot of sense because you know, some of the more the podcasts I'll listen to with larger companies where the board of directors is, you know, the, the, the entrepreneur, the, the, the management team is just trying to satisfy, you know, the board and, you know, get through the meeting versus actually leveraging them as strategic, you know, an asset to help, to help grow the business. And, you know, I love that idea with, with the mentor, especially with the a CEO mentor that, you know, I'm assuming it could be once a week or maybe not speak for six weeks, depending on, on where the business is. But I think that's really great insight. Yeah. And it's, it's, but I think what's important is that you're actually working on something together. It's okay. not, not a, oh, I'm going to give you an update on to where we are. I mean, yeah, obviously there's part of that, but you employ these people to say, I need to fix these five things. Or you say, this is where I'm at. And they'll say to you, you need to go fix these five things. So usually it's the latter, <laughs> but it's, you know, it's really, it's, they, they, they're able. And usually for me, at least it's about timing for hiring. So they'll say you need, like, I tend to run hard until we're about to explode and then we'll hire. A lot of times they'll say, Tessa, you really need to hire X or you need to think about, you know, resourcing for why, because I'll, I'll just kind of keep pushing as hard as we can before we, that's why we're profitable, I guess. So, <laughs> <laughs> but, but they, they provide good, good perspective on, 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 on also the speed of growth. Cause you know, when you're growing, you know, last year we grew almost 60% year on year. So that's a lot. Right. And, and that means, you know, our customer success team went from like 10 to 20 overnight. So, you know, it's, it's just a lot of growth and you don't anticipate the resources that you need to handle that. Yeah, that's, that's a, actually a really good point that I don't think we talk about enough is, you know, for lack of a better word, call it a coverage model, right? As you're growing the business, a lot of the effort and the time is spent on the new business development and how do we get more business in the door and onboarded. But as you continue to add to that customer base, you know, I think customer success tends to be an overlooked skill or of an organization, you know, it's so much easier and less expensive to keep a customer than, than getting a new customer. So I think that's a great point. So, okay. I think you answered a little bit of this, but in hindsight, you know, was there anything you would have done differently? I think you'd mentioned, you know, specialize a little bit sooner, but you know, as you've gone through this journey so far, and I believe you guys are just at the, you know, the base of, of where this company is going, is, is there anything else you would have done differently? Or was there any lessons uh, that you would have learned? I think I would have, I think I would have probably done everything earlier. If we could. Okay. <laughs> it's a beautiful thing, right? But I would have, I would have hired better people sooner and I would have had 
I think more processes in place before we hit growth, but you, you kind of don't know when it's going to crack. And so we're a little bit in scramble mode sometimes and, oh, we need a system for this. We need a process for this. So I think those are the two things that you just can't anticipate. And actually the head of product and I, we laugh all the time and we're like, oh my gosh, we've been talking about documentation on this, this, and this forever. And now like we so need it. And now we've got people working on it, but you know, like at the time when it's a small group of people, it doesn't matter because you know everything. Right. So, <laughs> so it's kind of like this catch 22 thing. So, so we did it at the time. No one would read it because we all knew. So it's, yeah, it's funny. But as you go, the, the, the grow, the times, the time change, and, you know, maybe just piggybacking off that question, you know, as founders of companies that are looking to get to that breakthrough stage, is there, any other advice that obviously once you get through that, you know, I think the speed and if you would have done stuff earlier, it would have maybe facilitated the growth a little bit quicker. But, you know, when you're at that, you know, tipping point, anything specific that, that you guys did, or was it just perseverance and persistence that they got you through? I think um, it's a bit of both. So, I mean, the number of people who said we would never make it, I can like, there are hundreds like, okay. oh, didn't take us seriously, or they didn't think we were going to make it, or they didn't take us seriously at the time. And now we're kind of, you know, having the last laugh, I guess, from that perspective. But um, I, I think when you get to scale up mode, it's really important to have thinking time. So you can think on, I know it's, again, another cliche, but really thinking on the business. And because I travel so much between Australia and the US, I spend a lot of time on planes and some of them don't have Wi-Fi, which is the best thing for our business because I can think for like, it's like I a hundred percent agree with you on that. And it's just, you know, having that downtime where there's, you know, not, you're not like whack-a-mole, like putting out fires and you can just think about where you're going. What are your priorities? The other thing that I think is really important is that it can get really overwhelming thinking about how do you scale? So you get to your next milestone. You're like, great. How do I get to hundred million? Great. How do I get to the next phase? And there's so much to do, but thinking about it in terms of quarters and then thinking within each quarter, I'm going to do a couple of great things in each department and that's how you move it forward. And so that milestone concept is, you know, really that and the plane rides are the two <laughs> thing I think from, from it. Yeah. No, I think that's that's some really great great advice. So, man, this is this has been awesome. I do want to be respectful of your time as as you're knee deep in the, the states, but I, I appreciate you taking some time. What I would like to do is kind of end with what I call our a rapid fire closing session, where the audience gets to know you a little bit. So, if you're ready, I'm going to hit you with the first question. Sure. All right. What is an experience that really helped shape who you are today? It could either be professionally or personally. I actually think having a child is, is that, um, because I think it gives you empathy for humans and you realize, you know, if you're a go, go, go type A personality, you know, having, having a family is humbling and it's exhausting and you have just more respect for others around you because you realize everybody was once a cute, cute baby <laughs> and they're just, <laughs> parents who love them. And so I just think it, you know, it made, I think overall it made me probably more empathetic and yeah, probably more pleasant to be around. <laughs> um, I think that's probably the most life-changing thing for me. Yeah. And it gives you some balance and maybe perspective, right? Yeah, absolutely. You know, you can, you know, you can work yourself to death and then, you know, come home and step on a rubber duck and it's all fine. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. The, the child doesn't care that you had a bad quarter, right? Exactly. Exactly. 
Uh, awesome. So the question number two is a two-part question. First is, what is your favorite book? And second, what is one thing you would highly recommend? Sure. So my favorite book, I, I love spy novels. That's all I read. So it's, a, it's kind of a problem because it's the only thing <laughs> I read except for you know, business books. So I would say anything written by Daniel Silva, um, I just... As soon as something comes out, I'm like, I read it within 30 seconds. So I would say Spy Novels by Daniel Silva. And the one thing that I do recommend is having a day off. So Saturdays usually are my Sabbath days where I don't work and I just relax and have fun. And I really try not to look at emails and don't worry. So having a day off where you just don't work just to have a break is is really important. So I started doing that a couple of years ago and it's been... Um, I don't always stick to it, but it's, <laughs> I definitely recommend and I try to do because everyone needs a break. So even if you love your company and you love what you're doing, it's just, just have a breather. Yeah. Agreed. I was going to ask you if you were hundred percent committed to it, but you already answered it. So you're close enough. <laughs> I'm close enough. Yeah. Look, I try. And, um, we have a, um, farm, like a hobby farm with cattle and stuff. And, it, it kind of forces you when you have to chop wood and like load trailers full of wood for the entire day. It kind of forces you off the computer, which is, which is a good thing. Yeah. And by the way, that wasn't in your bio. So <laughs> <laughs> it's good to know. I don't know if that's a guilty pleasure or just, you know, uh, you know, you're, it's, yeah, it's, my, it it's, my, it's my, um, hands-on experience. Oh, that's funny, but awesome. Um, and last call, if you could have only one more beverage, you know, kind of think last meal, what would it be? That would have to be a margarita. <laughs> nice. <laughs> of course. Even if it didn't end up being your last, you can still recover. I've had some folks say, you know, full bottle of wine, maybe whiskey. But then again, if I do wake up tomorrow, I've got to be able to function. So I think one margarita is, is pretty good. Yes. Especially in the summer months, the hotter, the better. (laughs) So excellent. Well, thank you, Tessa. I really appreciate your time. Is there anything else you want to discuss before we wrap up? I think that's good. It was really nice talking to you. It's been a while and it's, it was, it's enjoyable to just kind of sit back and, you know, talk about the business and where we've come from and where we're going. So thank you. Yeah, definitely excited to see where you're going to take it. And, and lastly, if anyone is interested in learning more about you or the company, what's the, where's the best place for people to find you? Oh, probably just on intelligencebank.com. Again, Tessa, thank you very much for the time. There's a lot of value in this. And uh, like I said, we look forward to seeing what you and Intelligence Bank accomplish here in the next few years. Thanks, Brett. All right, take care. You've been listening to Hardwired for Growth. To ensure that you never miss an episode, subscribe to the show in your favorite podcast player or visit brettrainer.com. That's B-R-E-T-T, followed by his last name, T-R-A-I-N-O-R.com. Thank you so much for listening. Until next time.